Hello, this is Fiona Cuthbertson coming from the pod to record another episode of Off the Cuff. This week we're lucky enough to have Duncan Baker MP. A true local, he's been the MP for North Norfolk since December 2019. Committed to understanding local issues and able to speak with an authentic voice about what matters to people who live and work in his area, he has spoken in the House on a wide-ranging number of issues from insurance to transport, business to education. In addition, today he's presenting his 10-minute rule bill named Autism Early Identification Bill, which will seek to make autism modules a mandatory part of initial teacher training. Welcome, Duncan. Welcome, Fiona. It's lovely to be with you. Thank you very much. So, firstly, can you tell us a bit about your political journey and what led you to want to be a member of the House of Commons? Well, I think I'm a bit of an unusual egg, really. I was a very late starter, never really hugely political, but got involved in local politics, really, in 2009 when I was a very fresh-faced councillor in my hometown where I grew up, Holt in North Norfolk, which many people will know is a beautiful Georgian town famed for the royals shopping in it. And my stepfather was always very political. And he said, well, you know, if you want to help the area, the best thing to do is to get on to the local council. So I did. And it was in 2015 at 35 that I became mayor of Holt, which was a little bit strange because everybody else was at least twice my age on around the table. And after that, this sort of little seed was sown when a very, very strange phone call came from the then clerk for the town council said everybody thinks that one day you'll be the MP, which was a complete bolt out blue. I never did what I did for any potential reason to become a member of parliament. But I went home that night and said to my wife, look, this unwitting journey that my stepfather set me on has now got people talking around the local town saying that boy one day will be our MP. And she said, listen, I'll support you in anything you want to do. So I told my stepfather I was going to leave. I was going to run for parliament. He was, as you can imagine, pretty upset. And it all happened very, very quickly. And I was selected with, I think, second largest swing in the country in 2019. The very sad part of it was that my stepfather died just five months before I was elected and never got to see me do it. I know he'll be looking down very proud. And ever since then, I have just worked tirelessly as a local MP. I'm not really interested at all in ministerial high office. I think that's unusual for, for MPs. But frankly, I've got enough to do looking after my own area. And I enjoy that part of it more than anything else. That's a very poignant reason to go into local politics and then become an MP. So how has your previous career in local council and as a sub-postmaster prepared you for becoming an MP? Oh, I think it's given you a very, very good grounding. I think there's too many MPs that end up in this place who probably haven't necessarily worked in a normal part of life. I don't mean that disparagingly or rudely, but, you know, I was a finance director. I'd been an accountant. I'd stood on the shop floor and sold things ever since I was 10 years old. So... I just think you've got to have an understanding of what real life is about. People will say, oh, well, how does he know about real life? Well, I'm pretty close to my roots. I'm pretty close to my constituency. I think if you can identify with your constituency and you care about it, it will make you a far better MP. And if you've lived a little bit of life experience and done a job rather than worked for an MP, uh, come through the ranks of being a special advisor, I think that gives you a bit more of an identity with your constituency. So that previous career of being a local councillor, very much just gave you the grassroots of democracy, the grassroots of what this job's all about. And actually, they're no different. When you're a local councillor, you are helping and supporting and making good decisions for the local area. But it's a very small local area. When you get into national politics, you're still trying to do that for a wider area. Maybe you're representing 70,000 people. But the, the strands of what you're doing and why you're doing it 
there's no real difference there. It's just a much larger platform. And mentioned about being a postmaster, what has happened in the last few weeks with sub-postmasters is feels very real. I went on all the training courses. I know lots of people in the post office hierarchy. I met all of Ennals. If only I had known what I know now back then and have many colleagues that still are friends who are in the post office. So integrity, being yourself and being honest and hardworking are all the things that equip you well to be an MP. And I've carried those on as I've ended up in this national position. And what has been the highlight of your career so far? It's a huge privilege to do this role. I mean, my word, have we been through it in the last few years, you know, pandemics, to wars in Ukraine, unrest in the Middle East, the dreadful energy crisis and cost of living issues. And then, of course, some pretty turbulent times within the Conservative Party. I mean, you have seen absolutely everything. And to be a part of that history and to try to be a fairly sensible person through that, I think has helped. But I think for me, it's probably two highlights got into running in lockdown because you know everybody wanted to have something to look after their mental health i hadn't done a lot of exercise for a long time most mps go up in trouser size i've managed to go down in trouser size which is almost a bit unheard of in this place but that's by getting fit and i've raised about eighty-nine thousand for local charities which i don't think many mps can say they've done and so i'm really proud of that fact that i've managed to benefit so many local charities with my fundraising And the real highlight has been being the first MP to look after Ukrainian refugees. Like everybody else, watched the war unfold and said to my wife, we have to help these poor people. So we made contact with a young mother and I was the first MP to bring a young mother and her little boy into the country. They've been with us ever since. We're very close. We've looked after them. And I feel very proud of being able to lead by example and have done that. And that's definitely been the career highlight. And obviously you're opening your own home and making sure that people really do know you. So working cross-party in politics is often key to getting the change needed. What would you say is the best example of this happening in practice? Well, outside world thinks that MPs are, you know, they only vote with the party line. And of course, there's an element of truth in that. But actually, we're far more collegiate than people think. We do get on with our colleagues on different sides of the House. Certainly, I have got people that I can talk to and get on very well with in the Labour Party. And I think people don't see that when the cameras are turned on. They just sort of see people at each other's throats. And that's sort of part of democracy. And there's an element of theatre in that as well, I have to say, in the rough and tussle of the chamber. But there is far more working together than perhaps people would realise. And of course, go back to the post office scandal. I mean, there's nobody in Parliament that has uh, had the greatest of sympathy for this situation. And all parties have worked together on this to get the changes that we have seen. I was on Newsnight 10 days or so ago with a lady from the SNP, Marion Fellows, lovely lady. She's chaired the APPG for the post office, and we've worked together on this matter. So whether it's that issue, whether it's environmental matters, there's often a lot of agreement in the House on different matters and we've worked together and and I've certainly done that on our select committee. So I sit on the the environmental select committee because I just think that the environment and legislation to protect it will be the biggest amount of legislation for the next 25 years. And so many of us have worked collaboratively on issues there, whether it's sustainability, whether it's lowering carbon emissions. Every single week, we pretty much work cross-party. We very much don't disagree with what we're trying to do and we're united to try and leave the world in a better place.
And education is also an issue where cross-party collaboration is needed. And we've been working together on helping young people with special educational needs get the education they deserve. And this is now culminating in your 10-minute rule bill being presented today that will make it mandatory for teachers to be trained in identifying autism before they go into the classroom. Why is this so important? I think everything I've said so far, I hope, has demonstrated that I'm pretty close to what's going on in my constituency. I take a minute level of detail into the casework that's coming through the office. And I know not all MPs do that. Not all MPs reply to their constituents or they let someone else do it. But I take a genuinely close interest in what goes on. And I've seen the volume of cases come through our office of parents who have children with a special educational need. And they're just not getting the help and support that they require. And that really does break my heart. I cannot imagine how difficult that must be. And so with your good self, but meeting people along the way where they have just been at their wits end to be able to try to get this help and the support for their children has really inspired me to, to come up with this bill. And I mean, as part of our team, you'll know Hayley Turner, who's been with us right from the very beginning with a very real life story. I can still remember her case coming in with Rocky and we tried to help her. We didn't do the job as well as we should have done, in my view. And I get cross about that. But that young lady absolutely was a real, real lightning rod. She worked so hard to get the place for Rocky that he should have had, and she managed to do it. And I was really inspired by her work over that, and it meant something to me. It also meant something to me that I'd seen little children at my children's school begin to get the help and support that they needed with special educational needs. And I'd seen the transformation in those children in the playground from day one when they turned up. I could see that they were really struggling to integrate. Yet a couple of years down the line with the right help and support, they were transformed. And all these things, I think, all went in. And and I just thought, we must do something about this. So we looked into it further and further. And I just could not believe that initial teacher training does not have mandatory training. I mean, I just beggars believe it's such a common sense that if you could get help and support earlier, and help and support can come from being able to identify that someone needs help and support, then surely that would have longer-term ramifications to help young people. So I've been very proud that we've led this. It's taken a long time because Parliament was prorogued back in November when we were hoping to read this bill, but we got there in the end. I think we've done a better job by having a little bit of time to get to where we are today. And I just hope that the government takes notice of it I understand warm words. I understand ministers can't wave magic wands just as much as backbenchers. But I don't want this to be forgotten about. No doubt about it. The inspiration came from what I'd witnessed in my constituency. And coming back to those children that you saw in the playground of your children's school, there is often an attitude of wait and see regarding diagnosis for autism. Why does this not help autistic children? Well, because all of the scientific research has told us that early intervention is absolutely key. And where you've got lived experiences, you have. I don't have children who are autistic, but I've lived experience from witnessing it through the eyes of other friends and other children. You can clearly see when they are given the right help and support around them, that framework, that love and attention, that actually autistic children are incredibly bright, talented wonderfully trustworthy, caring, loving children, and they just need that help and support. And again, it comes back to, in my speech, which I have to deliver later on, there's a line in there, which I know Hayley has contributed to, basically says that autistic children are just sitting in a classroom environment, which effectively is not set up to cope with the neurodiverse 
situation of how their brain operates, they're set up to fail. However, if they're given that right love and attention and setting, they can thrive. And I've witnessed that firsthand, and that is exactly why I want to bring this bill. And the bill will also help resolve the inconsistencies in the current SEND system, because we all know that it's a bit of a postcode lottery at the moment. Yeah, it is. And I talk about Norfolk, clearly, because I'm a Norfolk MP. I'm just highlighting the facts that of what the situation is like in Norfolk. And Norfolk actually isn't one of the worst at all. There's far worse counties where the ECHPs are just enormous backlogs, children not getting the help and support as quickly as they should do. So I hope that this whole process, this journey that we have been on, shines a light on the situation. And I think that's what how politics works best, is when you shine a light on a situation and you highlight it and you get buy-in from parliamentarians, and we've got some big hitters on our bill, but the minister listens, that's how you get some traction and get some change. And people often get a little bit upset because they think that things happen automatically. They don't. Parliament is a sluggish mechanism. It can take a long time for things to actually get to where we need to get them to. But it's all about a direction of travel. Clearly, that direction of travel is in our, our favour and it has got better over the last few years and it will continue to get better. But we want to make sure that we push it along faster. And I think that is how good legislation is made. And I think that's what we're going to get later on today. And how can we help ensure that the skilling that this bill will give to teachers is rolled out in practice? Well, that is all going to be dependent on whether the government adopts this bill. And as I said before, I don't really want to be hearing warm words, but I do recognise that it won't be just picked up and said, here we go, we'll start enacting this next week. We already know that there are plans afoot to review the ascend of the alternative provision. And I hope within that, people are already looking at the initial teacher training core content framework. And therefore, this bill, Fiona, will be that prod to remember when they start to do that, to think about, ah, remember those things that Duncan Baker talked about and had meetings with the Department of Education where we met with the officials there, that all those things come together and they think, do you know what, they has got a point here. They remember that and say, look, you know, this is high time. We make sure teachers get every bit of help and support and training that they can then help those young people to get the support that they need. Just about education, it's about helping autistic children live a full life and say they're often labelled as disruptive or naughty and this can affect their mental health quite severely. So how will this bill help reduce that problem as well? Well, I mean, that is a very, very good question because at the moment, far too many people being dislabeled as disruptive or naughty. And of course, that affects their mental health. I mean, I've seen it firsthand in instances as recently as the last few months, sitting in schools with teachers and parents and the, the children just not getting the help and support that they need. But once the SENCO gets involved, they will then make sure that child is given that help. And almost within a matter of months, it's incredible to see that young person flourish because finally they've got the right help and support around them. And how important has it been to engage sector specialists in creating this bill? Well, it's been invaluable because I'm not an expert, but I've been very, very lucky to have people like yourself around me, to have ambitious about autism, to have Andre Skeppel, who was your last podcast, which I enjoyed listening to yesterday as I was running my 16 miles. It was a bit short. It's only 19 minutes. So I then had to listen to any questions. Trust me, yours was a far better podcast. Oh, thank um, you. But, you know, we, we, 
<laughs> we've been very you just need to get the same level of audience somehow you know but it's been a journey where listening to people like yourselves and Andre and Ambitious about Autism and, and Haley who've all contributed to improving my knowledge in the early days we struggled to get the shape of this bill right and it was amended quite a few times until we got it honed into how it was going to be presented to parliament and that was probably largely because for me it was I was out of my comfort zone I mean we've worked on bills together previously we worked on quite a well-known bill, which was trying to make the post office, the financial services distributed on the high street because we saw that the banks were going to keep closing. Well, hey, this was about three years ago we put that bill together. And how much of that has come true in the last few years? You know, But I knew lots about that subject. I'd been a postmaster. I was an accountant. I knew about the banking framework. It was a much easier bill to be able to put together this far more complex because it was out of our comfort zone. So we've had to rely on lots of expert help. I, I couldn't have done it without everybody that's contributed. And I you know, thank you so much for all that you've done, because you in particular have been absolutely phenomenal at leading this and have kept us on the straight and narrow like you always do. And it's been a privilege to work with you. Oh, thank you very much, Duncan. I really do appreciate that. Do you think this is going to be an issue at the next election? Sadly, no, because we are so led by kind of the way the media is driving a particular agenda or, or issue. And, you know, really serious issues in society like this are not big ticket items. They don't get the national news that they deserve, whereas the national news is preserved pretty much for effectively war. And we're seeing a lot of unrest around the world, so effectively defence of the realm will, I think, uh, feature heavily. Uh, person that's my tip, you know, we've got, what is it, what, 10 months to go, but I suspect, you know, we're going to see far more of that, sadly, given what the situation we're in as a world. The economy is what people vote for in terms of security, but security in a number of ways. That's security financially, security in energy, security in protection. But we also know that issues such as immigration have dominated our headlines now pretty much since 2015. So we are nearly a decade into dealing with this issue around illegal migration and legal migration. And I suspect that will be another mainstream topic because this affects, as we say, 20% of people. You know, it's not going to be an election pillar. And that's sad because clearly we're very passionate about it. I will certainly be talking about it on my doorsteps. Our job is within the education side of the manifesto is to get this information in there. And I will certainly try to do that. Yes, we can get it into the manifesto on education. That would certainly be a good start. Obviously, we have a lot of social media now, 24-hour news. Do you think the election is going to be influenced by that? Massively and more so than it ever has before. And that's a great worry because, well, we've seen artificial intelligence plays more of a role in deep fakes, which are in the news. Just misinformation is enormous on social media. I do quite a lot on Facebook locally because it's very, very good to be able to just show what you're doing. And I think people look at that and they say, you know, he's an active chap, isn't he? He's always doing something, which is good because it creates a truthful picture that you are busy and you are working hard for your area. And I think that's important. Your easiest way to communicate with people these days is by social media. People don't read newspapers like they used to. They just don't. And even if they do read the newspaper, uh, they read it online or they read the social media platform that promotes that newspaper. So I think it's going to be very, very big. Do you feel positive about the future? 
Yeah, hugely so. There's a real tendency to talk things down in our country. And I just think it, it's just so wrong. But it's listen, it's how do you sell your wares? You, know, you don't sell your newspaper or get someone to engage with social media normally if you keep telling everyone how wonderful it all is. Unfortunately, the human psychology is that this information that hits you between the eyes that says, look at this, isn't it absolutely dreadful? is what basically engages the brain. I don't like that. My social media is normally quite nice stuff. If I put stuff about government policy, nobody really reads it or cares. If I put a nice picture of getting home on a Thursday night, which is what I did this week, and there was this enormous thing in my hallway, and I said, what on earth is that to my wife? She said, oh, that's your daughter's new cello case, which wouldn't even sit in, fit in the back of a car, put it on social media, it, you know, generates a huge amount of interest. People see you as a human being. They love the fact that you're a normal person, that you've got kids, that you're just the same as everybody else. So I think I'm hugely positive about the future because genuinely what we get fed through the media narrative is to do what I've just described, that actually normal people are sensible, they are kind, they are decent. And we've seen that time and time again over the last few years, the reaction to look after people fleeing for persecution from Ukraine. We saw an incredible kindness in our country. The unity we had when people were so terrified about COVID, saw people work together, help each other. Look at all the community groups that got together to deliver medicine and food parcels, etc., for people who were vulnerable. I'm hugely positive about our future. There is some uncertainty, but clearly the world is more unstable than it has been. But we live in a wonderful country, um, one that is a free democracy, one that is not experiencing anywhere near the traumas that certain parts of the world are experiencing. And so I'm very positive about it. And I think 99% of people I come across and talk to are exactly the same. And I say to everybody, just be positive. We have a wonderful, wonderful country. And I think they are. It's all too easy to get this narrative that we're fed through the media. And I just try to ignore it and be positive. Excellent. You've mentioned a number of times your social media channels. And where can people go to learn more about you? Well, if anyone wants to do that, they can very easily go onto Instagram or Facebook. They're pretty much the same for me. And it's Duncan Baker MP. You'll see all sorts of stuff on there. I do use Twitter as well, but mostly the same stuff as what I post on those other two social media networks. But if you're one of my constituents and you're listening in North Norfolk, people know that if they send me an email, I invariably pick up the phone and get back to them within the same day, which they always find pretty weird. And I think, why do you find that weird? It's like, you've contacted me. You need me. That's why I'm ringing you. You can always see what I'm up to through Facebook and Instagram. And thank you for listening and, and thank you for all your support with this. I hope that we carry on with many, many years of working on more bills together. That would be marvellous. Thank you very much, Duncan. And on that note, we've reached the end of another podcast. Thank you so much for coming to share with us your motivation for becoming an MP, the hard work you do locally and why you undertake work like this important 10-minute rule bill. And thank you to you, the listeners, who've hopefully enjoyed the podcast as much as we've enjoyed making it. And if you have any questions regarding it, please feel free to comment. If you think it's worth coming back, please like and subscribe. And if you need somebody to tide you over to the next podcast, please buy my book Party Games on Amazon. And on that note, I'll see you next time. Hope you have a good week, one and all.